What's up, y'all? Welcome to another episode of Bumper Sticker Fade. My name is Louis Dooley. I got my brother Sam Key with me. What's up, brother? We survived the storm so far. Which one? Yeah, all of them. It's what, been all one kind big of storm. I thought I saw Noah going by. Man, that'd be a bad <laughs> sign, but we know that can't be true because the Lord gave us the rainbow to tell us that he'll oh, never destroy right. the earth with water. So we good. We ain't going to flood away, but the next step <laughs> is the fire. Doom, doom, doom. <laughs> Anyway, so, man, we got a special guest today, yeah, we and do. we're doing it via Zoom, which is our first time. Yeah, so it's our first time. Hope we get it right. Hope we get it right, too. So tell us about what we got going on today, brother. So, so today we have uh, Dr. Stephen Bryan with mm. us, and uh, I uh, met Steve through a mutual friend of ours, uh, Mike, and uh, Mike Stanzak, who's been on this podcast before, and and Mike was has always been telling me about this, this guy in his church. Who, uh, who is also a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And uh, I thought I would really love to um, get to know him, get to know you more. And as we were getting closer to Easter now, it's Wednesday, and I thought it would be wonderful to be able to have someone like you, who, um, who I understand is working on a commentary in the Gospel of John, but to have someone of you, a, a New Testament professor and, and um, someone with a lot of ministry and missions experience as well, to be on the show and to, and to talk to us about the cross and about uh, atonement. So that's how I got to know uh, Dr. Brian. And uh, let's start with that, uh, the missionary. You were a missionary in Ethiopia for 23 years. Yes, that's right. Uh, from basically all, about 23 and a half years from 92 to tw 2016 when we moved back to the Chicago area. Wow. And I started teaching New Testament at Trinity. Wow. <clears throat> so what, what kind of work were you doing over in Ethiopia? Uh, a variety of things, um, primarily in theological education, training pastors uh, for the churches of uh, primarily of Ethiopia. Uh, it was also, uh, we were with the an organization called a mission called SIM, and uh, and for a period of time, I was the director of that mission for about six and a half years. So, but still, always through that time, involved in theological education, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, after a number of years in mission leadership, was really eager to get back into into full time working with students, teaching, and you know, uh, so. Uh, yeah, whether that's that's in Ethiopia or, or here in the Chicago area, where we have just a huge diversity of of people, and at Trinity, you know, our students come from all over mm -hmm. the world. So, uh, that feels uh, like a, a bit of an extension of what we were doing in Ethiopia as well. And you have a, a book that came out in 2022, which no doubt came from flowed out of those experiences there, and that's um, cultural identity and the purposes of God. And the subtitle is. A Biblical Theology of Ethnicity, Nationality, and Race, uh, published by Crossway. Has has that been uh, received well into the culture these days? Well, no one has uh, has thrown eggs in my house <laughs> or anything like this. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's a good that's a good sign. But yeah. I think so. Uh, it's early days, yeah. You know, it yeah. just came out. Uh, I guess uh, uh, July, so it's been out six months or so, okay. uh, a bit more, um, and. Uh, early early reviews have been very positive, and um, I think there's not anything quite like it. There's yeah. a lot of studies of ethnicity and race from a sociological and anthropological viewpoint, but not too much uh, in terms of biblical theology, mm -hmm. just tracing God's purposes for peoples across the storyline of Scripture. So I'm curious to ask real quick, like, how did you get to Ethiopia? Well, I met a guy. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and back in 19, uh, let's see, when would that have been? 1988 or so. And uh, and during the, that time, uh, Ethiopia was governed by a communist country. Uh, most of the missionaries that had been there had been expelled from the country. Uh, and and he was there. He had been allowed to stay because he had a visa uh, to operate a church for internationals. So the International Evangelical Church and um uh and so he was he was doing it but they the church ran what they called the evening program and it was basically a bible college <laughs> and mm. and it was attended almost exclusively by uh by ethiopians most of the ethiopian churches had been had been closed down and 
So when he came through Trinity, he was thinking of a day when he was planning for a day when the communist government would no longer be there and 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 things would open up. And so he was recruiting. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. um, but as it turned out, uh, I went over for three months on a short term kind of tourist as a tourist uh, sort of thing. And I taught in that uh, in that Bible college. Uh, almost all of my students had been in prison for their faith. Mm -hmm. uh, and about the time that I finished, um, the communist government fell. That is when I finished my master's program at mm. Trinity, uh, the communist government mm. fell. Uh, and so things just overnight mm. opened, opened up. And so within a few months of graduating, we had made a decision to uh, married by then and we'd made decisions. We were going to, we were going to go to Ethiopia mm. and no plans to, to come back. Uh, so we just stayed, wow. but we got this, you know, this Bible college had been underground, you know, it was properly established and, so I taught in that for a semester or so, and then, uh, and then, we, you know, there was they wanted to get a graduate program started. So I went off did doctoral studies, uh, came back, and was the first dean of the of the graduate program. And what would what would students that graduate? What would they often go into vocationally? Would it be ministry of some sort or? Yeah, they're going into ministry almost one hundred percent. Okay, and, wow. And would they stay? In Ethiopia, Africa, or just wherever? Uh, you know, a few have gone now as cross-cultural ministry uh, missionaries to other to other countries, uh, but the vast majority of them are are in Ethiopia okay. and doing ministry. I'd say primarily in urban contexts in Ethiopia, but Ethiopia is, is the second most populous country in, in Africa, over 100 million people, and Christianity is just exploding there. Wow. Uh, as had been for you know during that communist period when everything was all the churches were shut down uh, the underground church was just going like crazy nobody really really knew what was going on um it you know unless you were there on the ground you you had a sense that the spirit of god was doing something extraordinary and that was in fact that was in fact the case and it it has continued and there's all kinds of problems and issues you know with false teachings and you know stuff you read about in the new testament but um the lord has has done something really remarkable there that always blows my mind because on one hand it's like i'm so ignorant and so naive at the work that you know the holy spirit is doing in people's lives in other countries because i hear what you're saying and i'm just like man like that's actually happening and it's like why wouldn't that happen you know, and it's just like I'm just so boxed in in my mind of being here in the United States and not thinking internationally how the Lord's work is just thriving. Yeah. Well, we I mean, I think it does. That's one thing I noticed in coming back to the U.S. in 2016 is that uh, there is among Christians here just a different mentality. Many people you know, kind of feel like they're on the defensive mm. uh, and feel, uh, uh, you know, sort of like they need to to throw up the. The defenses and the walls and you know and and uh and that can you mm. know that can take a political form and i think here in the u.s that has taken unfortunately mm -hmm. a, a, it's been a kind of political response to that since that you know christianity is in decline and you know these kind of, uh that's that sensibility but i think underneath that underneath that kind of political response is an inadequate uh confidence in the power of the gospel mm. um, and so we're looking for worldly power mm -hmm. uh, in fact the power of the gospel is what we've been given mm -hmm. uh, and in one sense the, uh, I think what I learned from my Ethiopian brothers and sisters is is they believe the gospel is powerful and mm. they have confidence in it and and I think you know that's a good bit of why we're talking having this conversation yeah. about <clears throat> Good Friday today because of the you know, we're, we're thinking about the power of, of the good news. Yeah. So let's talk about the power of the cross then. <clears throat> and around this uh, Easter time, we hear words, people, Christians in church, uh, even non-believers probably, words like redemption and reconciliation and atonement, or even bigger words like propitiation. So there's all these words and uh, uh, associated with the cross 
Um, I want to get into atonement uh, as, as like a way into this. So what is atonement? Atonement uh, is, is is a difficult idea to explain, and partly because it's not just one thing. Uh, and, and there's multiple kind of quote-unquote theories or explanations of atonement, too. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it, it's it's more than one thing, and mm -hmm. I think necessarily more than one thing, because it's a it's a complex idea. But we talk about atonement when wrong has been done, mm -hmm. and we talk about uh, atonement as a way of making wrong right. How 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 does it, how is that possible? Um, and so, what what must be done to um, to make right what what the wrong that's mm -hmm. that has been done and often we're thinking about that in, in personal terms i okay. you know we, we still use that language you know i how can i atone for you know he's, he's trying to make atonement for it and usually what we mean is that by some compensatory action mm -hmm. uh he is trying to kind of balance the scales as it were so there's more of a relational aspect to it rather than just paying a fee yeah there is a relational aspect to it yeah that's okay. right that's right um but as I said, it's com it's, it's complex, mm -hmm. and I think uh, any of us, any of you know, we've all done wrong, mm -hmm. and we've all suffered wrong, uh, and I think because that is a that is a very human experience, uh, we all have a kind of intuition about the the necessity of mm -hmm. uh, atonement. We might suppress it, but we we all know that. Um, if, you know, if you're, you know, if you're someone close to you, uh, you know, hurts you, um, and especially if they've, they've done so willingly, but often, even if they've not, you know, done so consciously or intentionally, you still, you still have been hurt. And, uh, and to the extent that the person who has wronged you, um, you know that that relationship is going to 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 be made right is going to continue uh some that's going to be a costly transaction and the the greater the wrong mm. uh, the the more costly it's going to feel to the, the person who's been wronged uh for to for that re relationship to be mm. restored um it, it's going to feel very it's going to feel very costly so it so getting to the, the cross and like the costliness of it, was there another way for God to atone for our sins? Because it, because it seems like that was a, that is a pretty big a cost to give up, uh, to give up a son. And uh, was there another way? Do you think, or, or 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 was that it? Like why why wasn't the blood of um, animals, for instance? from the old Testament, why wasn't that just enough to continue on? Well, once it's, this is Jesus question in Gethsemane, isn't it? Hmm. You know, if there's, if there's any other way, you yeah. know, let, let this cup pass from me. And and so I think that's a, uh, that's a great question. And I think, uh, you know, Jesus, Jesus prayer, you know, not nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Uh, I think is, is the indication that Jesus himself is aware that this is the way hmm. it must be this way. And, and you find through the, through the gospel, through the passion narratives and a stronger in some gospels than in others, but it's, it's in there in all the gospels, the language of, uh, of divine necessity. It had to be this way. It was necessary that hmm. it, this happened to fill, fulfill what was, you know, what, was written in the prophets you know the, this kind of thing is it's a scriptural necessity but i think there's also a divine necessity that it is it's uh it is what must happen in the purposes of god for uh the the wrong the evil the sin that has come into the world to 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 be made right mm -hmm. so so atonement is a word that has always been i mean really high up in my in my world as a Christian, mm -hmm. which I would hope that it'd be in everyone's world. But I've always learned that atonement um, was kind of two things. And the second of the two, which I'll mention, is very often overlooked. 
And I guess it could depend on if one would agree with the two things that I would say. Mm -hmm. So we kind of talked about the first part, right? Atonement being like a payment, you know, so Jesus was our payment for our sin, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, which is great, which is good, which is necessary. But then the second part I always learned was not only is our sin paid for Jesus's righteousness is attributed Mm -hmm. to us. So I liken that to a twofold thing. So in other words, in order to live in heaven, you must be righteous. Mm-hmm. Not just, I mean, just with without sin, is that synonymous with being righteous? And I guess you could argue either side, right? And the side mm-hmm. I would pick would be no. Mm-hmm. Like, I could maybe, in a moment, if I confess my sins to God and, and, and ask for forgiveness and I'm turning away, and in that moment, before another thought or another act, mm-hmm. I'm freed of my sin, the penalty of it, but I'm kind of like neutral, if you will. Mm -hmm. Like that doesn't make me fit for heaven because that doesn't mean I'm righteous. At least that's Mm -hmm. the side I would argue. But the atonement is much more than just a payment. It's also something that's given. And and where one of the verses I kind of get that from is 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where it says, for he, God, made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we become righteous in God's eyes through Jesus's death and his blood being shed. So that's kind of how I always defined and looked at the word atonement. I'd be curious to to get your um, thoughts on, on that. Yeah. What you're referring to there, the theologians call it uh, double imputation or mm. <laughs> you know, a, a double exchange that's that, that takes place. Uh, some have, in recent days, you know, kind of disputed that that's the mechanism of atonement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but I think that's right. I think I think you know I I would say that it, you know there is that kind of language in Scripture to speak about the fact that uh, the one who knew no sin became sin. Uh, he took our unrighteousness and and that he is the one who suffers as the righteous one, and that righteousness of uh, that he suffers. And I think this is a feature even of the Johannine passion narrative, uh, which uh, on a number of occasions uh, uh, alludes to or actually cites uh, Old Testament texts <clears throat> in which uh, there's a righteous sufferer. Hmm. So it's the Psalms, right? That's that kind of are woven through uh, John 18 and 19. Yeah. One of the functions of those psalms is mm. to is to portray Jesus as as the righteous one who suffers unrighteously. He suffers at the hands of the unrighteous. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is this uh, there's this, and it's narrated as well mm-hmm. uh, uh, as the in the exchange that takes place with uh, with Barabbas, right? Mm-hmm. The, you know, the unrighteous one uh, is for, is set free. Uh, and the 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 righteous one is crucified. Mm-hmm. And so there, it's it's. I think in the Gospels, it's a way of narrating this this exchange that you're uh, that you're talking about. The mm-hmm. guilty go free, uh, and and the and the righteous one uh, suffers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like when you're reading through John 18 and 19, there's these. It seems to be all these little like mini little episodes mm-hmm. or scenes. Where like I'm reading and I'm thinking I know something is going on here more than maybe what I realize, but as you said, perhaps they're they're leaning uh, on the Psalms and the idea of the righteous sufferer. So like you have then suddenly the scene changes and you have the the soldiers uh, 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 dividing up his garments, which is is from the Psalms. But there's probably other episodes uh, in there, others of those scenes. Maybe even Jesus. Uh, and is giving his mother Mary to 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 John to look after. I'm not I'm not sure which all scenes uh, um, point to that the righteous sufferer, but y- you can see that something's going on there. Yeah, that's true. Um, so that that certainly is a significant feature of what's going on in in John 18, 18 and nineteen. But it's not the only thing going on in in the way that John theologizes about. Uh, about the, the the passion and and one of the things I think that uh, that is easy to miss is you know one one very common approach to uh, to the passion narratives in the Gospels 
is that they provide the kind of raw materials. Uh, it's just, you know, kind of telling the, the story of what happened. Uh, but the theologizing about it takes place in the epistles, uh, mm -hmm. particularly in, in Paul. And I think that's a mistake. I think that what we have in the Gospels is narrated atonement. Uh, and narratives, uh, they theologize in a, in a different way. Narratives are indirect discourse. So whereas Paul maybe ex would explain what atonement is and explain kind of the mechanism of atonement uh, in, the, in the Gospels, it's implicit. It's indirect. It's it, it telling a story, but telling the story in such a way as to uh, create an understanding. Understand <clears throat> Yeah, like the like the parable of the uh, prodigal son. Yes, I mean we make meaning by means of stories. Even I think you know Paul's theologizing is explicit, mm -hmm. but it assumes a story. Mm -hmm. uh, the gospels, you know, theologize by means of a story. Mm -hmm. I can put it that way. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I never even and thought the, about that. The parables are 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 story. You know, are, are often story parables in particular or stories within the story mm -hmm. don't have any parables in john's gospel but you know there that that notion of communicating meaning by means of a, of a story that's that's what we get and i think that's how uh, atonement is communicated in a gospel like john so a very common idea even among scholars is that the gospels have no theology of atonement Hmm. And I, I think that's just a lack of imagination, hmm. <laughs> which is not to say you, you, you imagine atonement in, in them by, by reading Paul back uh, on to them, but you, instead you attend to what uh, a gospel is and you attend hmm. to how the words work, uh, the way the words go and how the story functions uh, and, uh, and the storytelling itself is the mechanism for for communicating how you know god's response to to human sin yeah you know as i was sitting here listening to you i couldn't help but think um tonight at our bible study we're talking about like kind of how the bible came about and why the bible is god's word and stuff like that and i was just thinking about what man or men would write a book that would entail to serve this great God who created you, you're going to suffer. And maybe in some instances you must suffer for the sake of it. Like what, what man would do that? Like we would be wanting to write about comfort. Mm. You know what I mean? I want to serve a God where all the things that my flesh desires, that's the great and awesome God I want to serve. And mm. that is the only God, right? But to yeah. say you're going to suffer and maybe even die. And then the focal point of the the book from beginning to end is all about the coming of a man who's going to suffer and die for the sake mm -hmm. of others. And it's just like, I don't know, man, that's just stirring in my mind and in my heart because I've been reading a lot of stuff. And it's just the atonement to me is a great picture of that. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, what we find in the gospels is, I mean, you make a great point. Um, and you know that that we we have here this extraordinary suffering, you know this extraordinary suffering, but this extraordinary story of God sending uh, this person to, you know, Jesus to to suffer, as we say, in our place or to suffer for our sake. Uh, but one of the things, and this is especially true in John's Gospel, um, one of the things that. I think is important to remember is that um, this is, as one New Testament scholar uh, uh, puts it, this isn't just a surprising thing to say about the Messiah. Um, this is this is the language of God. This is this is a surprising thing to say about God. You know, mm -hmm. this is this is God, uh, and. Uh, um, this is a new way of thinking about what it means for God to be God. So in mm. John, uh, he uses the language of divine glory to speak about crucifixion. That is a dominant category yeah. in, in John's gospel. This is the revelation of God's glory. And On glory the cross. Is words to, 
to define, you know, what is glory? Um, it, but one way of thinking about it is it's, it's, the, it's the presence of God himself, the presence of transcendence. But God cannot be seen, mm -hmm. you can, but you can see his glory. Um, and, and we see that in the New Testament where these mm -hmm. visible displays of, of the divine presence. Uh, you can't see God. But you can see, you can behold his glory. You can see his glory, uh, and so it, it's 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 visibly, you know, with the human eye, you can apprehend it, mm -hmm. and that is an extraordinary. Uh, that in itself is an extraordinary thing, but even more extraordinary is John's conviction that the climactic display of God's glory in human history. Is the moment of crucifixion. Hmm. This is when we see the presence of God most fully displayed. And so, if we wow. if we ask if we ask this question, what does it mean for God to be God? Hmm. Who is God? Um, it sounds like a very basic question, but it is, it is a fundamental hmm. question. Uh, and John's answer to that question is: Look at the cross. Wow. Hmm. So I got a question. How out of the four Gospels, how did you choose the Gospel of John to be one to write a commentary on? Uh, it, it, it was the other way around. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it chose me. I want to go back to that for a moment. Like, like this is God, the and this is His glory, the suffering God. Right? Yesterday, uh, I was so frustrated. <laughs> I was so frustrated. One of my um, coworkers um, sent me a, a, a link to a show that aired uh, the night before um, on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. It's NPR. She was interviewing Bart Ehrman, and he was. My coworker was saying, "Yeah, you know, Bart Ehrman says this and this and this about um, about God and about uh, in this case it was the Book of Revelation and how much God has changed um, from the um, sweet and gentle and lowly Jesus in the Gospels versus the Book of Revelation where there's just anger and wrath and then the God of the Old Testament and and so I was frustrated, <laughs> but um, I went and I listened to it and I was." very frustrated listening to airmen go on and on about how um basically a god of wrath uh, is not a god of love and i'm like it just doesn't make any sense uh that doesn't make any sense like you don't you don't know what love is without uh without suffering right without the wrath and and god took that on himself to show who he is so it's so they're all together they're not uh, mutually exclusive, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, you raise a, you raise an excellent point, and the point ultimately has to do with uh, the nature of justice, mm -hmm. what justice itself is. And uh, but if you you know if you if you can think if you can imagine a world in, in which no one was ever angry, it would be a very horrible place. Mm. Um, and that is to say. You know, we get angry illegitimately all mm -hmm. the time. Probably most human anger is illegitimate, uh, but sometimes we're, you know, we're justly ang uh, angry. You know, we we have a school shooting, mm -hmm. and we feel angry mm -hmm. ab about, you know, the fact that these children have been shot down. They're, you know, what, you know, they they have no role at all to play. Mm -hmm in the societal factors or what, you know, whatever the causes of, of what, uh, of what has happened, it, it, you know, it's not on them. Obviously mm -hmm. it's not. On them. And yet they've lost, they've lost their lives. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if that, if there isn't something in us that is 
that is justly angry about that or angry at the cause of that however mm -hmm. we identify the cause of that if we if we place the cause solely on the individual you know or a broader set of factors or you know maybe some combination of those things if we if human beings aren't justly angry at that there's something wrong with us yeah <laughs> yeah because yeah. anger says this isn't right right angry uh, anger or wrath is yeah. the is the appropriate response yeah. To, injustice, to injustice yeah, yeah I, I um there's a guy i know in a group i'm in who's always about love 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 and i'm like yeah love is great i mean love is god <clears throat> but to the point you guys made like there can be no love if there isn't an opposite right mm -hmm. unless there's a hate unless there's a wrong and so when i think about something like a school shooting like i kind of have to I don't know how to kind of question myself. Like, is it right? No, it's not right. Is it horrible? Yes, it's horrible. Do I get angry about it? Honestly, no. Not that it. I'm. I'm still saying it's wrong and it's bad and it's horrible. But I. I, I look at. Oftentimes, I look at a lot of things through the lens of the sovereignty of God, and maybe I'm wrong a lot of times. Maybe most of the times. Maybe all the time. But, but because God is love, He's the same God of love that's the same God of wrath, right? Because he hates sin. So he can't not hate sin because that would be against his very nature. And since God is sovereign, like he knows the school shooting is going to happen before it takes place. In his sovereignty, he's allowing it to take place. And it's kind of like, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's like tough love because it's not, but that's the closest thing I can relate to it from a humanistic standpoint, it's like I'm allowing this wrong and bad thing to happen because I know that it's necessary or dare I even say that it's good because from our standpoint, it seems to be evil and it seems to be wrong. And it, and it is that, but because we don't know the other factors that play may be playing a part in it, but God does is not that he doesn't see it as and and. It's not that he doesn't see it and be angered by it, but he doesn't stop it because he knows that there's something else that is driving or pushing towards. Does that does that make sense? A little. Okay. All right. Little. I know. Yeah, I, I think we have this very human uh you know, this this human instinct to think that, you know, that that's that evil can be redeemed. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure that evil itself can be uh, can be redeemed. Mm. That uh, it's not the evil that's being redeemed. It's human beings that mm. are being that are being redeemed. Uh, the language that Scripture uses, and we see this in First First Corinthians 15, is that it's swallowed up, mm. and that's a very different kind of thing than for it to be somehow. You know, somehow things are, you know, it, it, it all kind of turned out for good. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think that in one sense, there is an ultimate good and everything is will be will be brought into conformity. Uh, and the goodness that God built into creation will be restored. Uh, and but the question is, what about all the evil that transpired, the sin, the wrong? That transpired in between, mm. and and what what constitutes justice, uh, given the fact that, let's say in the you know for these children who's uh, who've been murdered, um, they can't be unmurdered. You know, making that right does not constitute the undoing of that act. It mm. happened in in time, and so that's why the question of atonement comes into uh, comes into play, and is such a an urgent question for us. How possibly can we think about atonement when the when the act cannot be undone, even if we're not thinking about a wrong done that's uh, as momentous as the murder of a child? Um, maybe it's just a careless word on my part. I can't unsay it, you know. I, I, I can feel bad about it. I can apologize uh, for it, um, but I can't, um, you know, we we speak, I think, somewhat foolishly of 
you know, taking those words back, we can't take them back once once they've been yeah. said. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's not the undoing of the sin. And if we think about redeeming a situation uh, by the undoing of it, that's not actually possible. Mm-hmm. And so we have to think about justice in in some other way, uh, because we cannot think about it as the as you know turning turning back the clock so that it, as uh, and making things so that it never happened. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the ways that John John talks about this is by thinking about the the, the question of life, um, and that is a that is a primary category for yeah, John. A big theme in John. A major theme in in John. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about in writing this commentary uh, is the way in which the 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 I am language works in mm-hmm. John's gospel. There's this these this famous sequence of seven I am statements. Mm-hmm. Where uh, sometimes it's a little bit obscured in English tra- translations, but uh, Jesus will simply say, "Ego me in mm-hmm. Greek, I am." Uh, and of course, this is you know it recalls. Uh, some key Old Testament texts, uh, two in particular. Um, one is uh, the revelation of the divine name in Exodus chapter three. You know this this burning bush ex- encounter between God and and Moses and Moses. Yeah. You know at the you know at the just prior to God's great deliverance of his his great salvation of Israel from bondage in Egypt. Uh, Moses wants to know, well, who is the God who's going to do this? And mm-hmm. so he asks, you know, what is your name? And and God simply says, he he says, I I am. And Moses like, that's what you got for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's his covenant name. But I think on John's reading of it, at least, uh, what he means by it, you know, what John understands that to mean is that who God is for His people is life itself that's what hmm. at the heart of what it means for god to be god what distinguishes god and not god and to the fundamental d- distinguisher is that god is the one who has life in himself and and that is true only of god and it's not true of anyone else it's true only of god mm-hmm. and so um you know, we get to those those great Isaiahic texts, those great monotheistic texts in Isaiah 44, 45. Um, you get this kind of I am language coming in. Then all the world will know I am, and there is no other. They will know I am. There, you know, all the other gods, so-called gods, what what demonstrates the fact that they are not really gods. They don't have life in themselves. They, you know, they, that, that's true only of God. Uh, and so John makes strong, strong use of that. And so in Isaiah 5, for instance, uh, he, Jesus says, he says, uh, he describes himself as, uh, as the one the Father has granted that he may have life in himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, part of our Trinitarianism, our understanding that Jesus is God, is that things are said about Jesus that can, that can only be true of God. And fundamental to that in John is the notion that Jesus is the I am. Um, and so two things, and then I'll, I'll pause. One is, when does it become uh, universally clear universally revealed that Jesus is I am in fulfillment of those uh you know texts from Isaiah 44 and 45 uh and the answer we get it in in John chapter 8 uh when the son of man is lifted up in crucifixion mm-hmm. then you will know ego me then mm-hmm. you will know I am um you know then you will then the, the the climactic revelation of the glory and of the presence and of the reality of god will be made clear to all the mm-hmm. to the all that will happen in the crucifixion wow. uh, so that's one of those those i am statements um and the last one uh occurs in uh at the beginning of the john's passion mm-hmm. narrative in john 18 with pilate uh, even before that, in the you know the party comes out for for the arrest, 
Okay. And and in case you oh in, yeah 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 in case you miss miss it it happens you know the, the the seventh one happens three times yeah you know and they says you know who are you looking for we're looking for Jesus and Jesus says I go in yeah uh, and and the way John narrates it the whole arresting party falls to the ground yeah yeah <laughs> and so it's like confronted with this the reality of who he who he is mm-hmm. in him. But what is John really claiming that his the narrative of Christ's death, his crucifixion, is the crucifixion of the one who has life in himself, mm. the one who is life. How is that possible? Mm. Yeah. How is it possible for life itself to die? And and that's what that's the paradox that mm-hmm. the irony that lies at the heart of John's passion narrative mm-hmm. that life itself is crucified. Yeah, uh, on on one hand, it, it's not possible to extinguish life, right? And I think of John chapter eleven when Jesus gives when he's talking to Mary and Martha, I guess, and he says, "I am," you know, after the death of Lazarus. I am the resurrection and the life. And I've often wondered, like, why does he speak in present tense? <laughs> like, why not speak in the future tense? Like, I will be, I will resurrect, like, don't worry. But Jesus very confidently says, I am, right? I am the resurrection and the life. So th- there's a sense, I maybe, that even at that moment, he's hinting that it's not possible to extinguish his life, right? No. Yeah, and you, you mentioned... A different kind of I am saying. So you have the seven absolute. Okay, so I that's not ego I me. No, it is. Oh. But here's the thing: is that you have the seven absolute ones, where Jesus just says, "Ego I me, I am." But then you have seven predicated ones. Oh wow! Where he thinks about, where he says things like, "I am the bread of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am the vine. I am the shepherd." Yeah. I think that those predicated ones are talking about. Uh, the ways in which the way in which the life that is in God himself is made available to his people. Hmm. Think about the, I am the bread of life Mm -hmm. in John, John chapter six, the bread that comes down from heaven is my flesh that I give for the life of the world. Hmm. If you eat my flesh, you will eat, you eat the bread of life. There's a lot going on there, but at a minimum, what he's communicating in uh, there is that this life that is in me is made available to you through crucifixion. Hmm. And so that life then is, is, hmm. is taken up in the language of divine instruction. You know, they, John's, John quotes from Isaiah 54, 13 there in John chapter 6. What is this eating of the bread of life? It is the fulfillment of Isaiah 54, 13, a new covenant text. They will all be taught of God. What does it mean to be taught of God? What does it mean to receive divine instruction? Well, I think from John's perspective, divine instruction is takes the form of the primal command live it's what it's what jesus says outside lazarus tomb <laughs> come mm-hmm. forth you know live it's mm-hmm. word remember the logos mm-hmm. language of john one his word is the means by which the life that is in himself gets into us mm-hmm. by his word through his spirit that life is made available to uh, is made available to us and I think the genius of, of John is to say it it's becoming available to us. That happens in crucifixion. The life that is poured out of him. And that's what, you know, you know, Old Testament conception of the pouring out of blood. What is that? What is that? It's the life belongs to God. Why does the blood have to be poured out in, in sacrifice? has to be poured out and sacrificed because the life as you know the very basic premise of the old testament sacrificial system is the life is in the blood the life belongs to god 
human beings can't take life because life belongs to God. So they can't shed blood because the blood belongs to, you know, the life that's in the blood belongs to God. So in the pouring out of his, his blood, his life is poured out and that life pouring out of his life makes it available to us. There's the paradox. There's the, there's the irony. Uh, and that life then gets communicated to us uh, by the spirit. Wow. Mm. That's deep. Let's talk about uh, some of the, um, some of the things that Jesus bore, how, how he suffered actually on the cross. I mean, the most obvious one is physical suffering, but there's other dimensions uh, to his suffering um, such as, uh, abandonment, being cut off from his father, um, bearing sin itself. Um, how, how did Jesus suffer on the cross? That's a great question. Uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, the, the suffering is physical, of course, mm -hmm. and that is, that's extraordinary. Uh, but, I mean, the, the Gospels don't turn away from that. John doesn't turn away from just kind of the violence. Mm -hmm. of, um, it, it is horrific. It is violent. It is un, unjust. Yeah, but like John especially d doesn't really go into that as much, the physical side, but there's all these other things going on, it seems. But there's, you're right. There's all these, these you know, he, it's the anguish of it. It is the, it is the sense that of God forsakenness. It's the sense that, uh, you know, the... Uh, yeah, of the fact that um, uh, I guess the, the divine response to his bearing of sin, the sin is that he bears, I mean, to use the language of John the Baptist from John chapter one, the Lamb of God who lifts up the sin of the world, that's his lifting up, his sin bearing, his there's a there's a divine response to that, and that mm -hmm. response is a response of divine anger, divine wrath. It's you know that it, it means something, uh, and there, there's something actual about that, and we can't psychologize that, but we can't we also can't kind of avoid seeing the 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 very human sense of uh, alienation and abandonment at having been made the you know not only the one who bears sins who lifts up sins but who receives in himself the divine response to mm -hmm. that wow i know that i don't know about you guys but whenever i i'm in a sin i feel like the the weight or the feeling that i i get especially when a sin has been exposed for instance and just the the shame and the isolation and the um, being cut off from others, like I, I, I feel the effects of sin on me, you know, one person. And I can't imagine how Jesus before his father felt bearing all sin of all people of all time um, on himself. To me, like that's one of the greatest dimensions of, of, of his sufferings. Yeah. I, I, you know, years ago <clears throat> when I was, like years, like 20 years ago when I was just sitting back one day thinking about like my sin and how that angers and impacts God. And I just started thinking, and I think it was around Easter time because for some reason, like the resurrection and the cross was on my mind. Mm -hmm. and I was thinking, you know, every time I sin, it's like I'm jumping up and smacking Jesus in the face while he's dying on the cross for me. And like, I like, I literally see myself jumping up doing it. And it's like, it feels like the wrongest thing that one could do in the world. And mm. I'm doing it. Like it's my sin that's doing it. Mm. And, you know, in a, in a weird way, um, over the years that's helped like humble me and help me like picture that, have that imagery in my mind that could even maybe help me in my fight mm -hmm. against sin. You know, but but that's an intimate, you know, to mm -hmm. me there's intimacy there. Like here's this man like naked on a cross dying for me and I'm choosing sin 
over him mm-hmm. and as if I'm saying, like, you're not good enough. Mm-hmm. Or or as much as he may have felt like God turned his back on him because he couldn't bear to see him in that moment. It's me turning my back on Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. while he's dying for me. And so, it, you know, that kind of helps put things in, you know, a perspective yeah. for me to help me in my fight against sin. That reminds me of uh, Peter and John's gospel. That he- like there's two, too, yeah. yeah. There's two denial scenes in yeah. um in John's gospel. Why is that? Like, what are, what are your thoughts? What's going on with with that? And, and like the first time they mentioned the charcoal fire, which I noticed this morning when I was reading it, and of course that's kind of a foreshadowing maybe to John twenty one with the charcoal fire and his restoration. But um, why two denial scenes? You're talking about the one back in chapter thirteen where. Where, where well, Peter says, uh, no, I, you're not going to die for me. I'm going to die for you. Well, that's another one then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I was, I think I was thinking in John 18 or 19, there's like, they're almost back to back of, um, Jesus or with, uh, Peter with, uh, with the different servants asking him. Maybe I'd have to look. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's there's a lot going yeah. uh, a lot going on there. There's this obviously the famous threefold denial. I suspect that you know, um, you know, Jesus has in the arrest. He says, "Egoi me," mm-hmm. and you know, I am, and and Peter says, "I am not." <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> so. That idea back in chapter 13, I'll die for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that's, you know, he's like, so I'm not like these, I'm not like these other guys, you know, I'm different from, okay. from these, from these other disciples, you know, and, uh, and, and, and he's not different. Yeah. Uh, and I think he's not yet come to see that like Mary, a bet, you know, Mary who, wash washes jesus jesus anoints jesus and it says for his burial Mm -hmm. um she accepts that jesus must die for her that jesus has to die Mm -hmm. he he accepts that he he died for her uh at least that's the way it's narrated not peter peter's like no i'll die for you but you die this you dying for me thing that's not Mm -hmm. a thing and that's almost like peter when he was Jesus told my washing his feet, and he was like, "You're not gonna wash my That's feet." That's what he's yeah, yeah. yeah. And That's like, you wash my whole body. Then. <laughs> it's that same. It's that same passage. It's that same sentiment. Yeah. Like, and and Peter is he's not about it. Uh, and I think that that you know his remorse after you know afterwards, you know, is this kind of sense that I'm not different. Um, I, you know that I'm not. Uh, you know he. He takes up his, you know, his seat along the with the all the other disciples who flee, and you know, with the with the false leaders, and you know, he's right there with them, and and Jesus must absolutely must die for him. And Peter's the one who whipped out his sword to cut off Malchus's ear too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Peter's implicated. I mean, so he's all. Um, I don't know what to how how to say it, but uh, he's. He's as long as it's about him doing something for for Jesus, he's he's all in, and we mm-hmm. we can't sort of impugn Peter for mm-hmm. you know for a lack of courage or he's courageous. Mm-hmm. Well, except when he gets asked those three times, does he know him? He ain't exhibiting no courage there. I guess I, I mean you're right, uh, <laughs> but he's courageous in the wrong cause, and when he when he realizes it's a lost cause. Mm. He's not. Yeah. He's not willing to join in the cause that is, is the cause of Jesus dying for him. Yeah. He's and Peter's fighting a different cause. He doesn't realize what grace is about. That you can't, you can't fight or cause your way into the kingdom. And maybe Peter's given in the Gospels as, at one reason, and in order to show us that, no matter how good you are, no matter how bold for your faith, no matter how many bold proclamations that you make, you have to be saved by grace. You have to be saved by his death and by love for Jesus like Mary was, right? Yeah, that's right. That's mm. right. Um, 
I, one last thing, I mean, I don't know when we have to be finished, but um, but one last thing I wanted to make sure that we talked about yeah. was just kind of the big picture yeah. of John. And, uh, you know, every, every if we think about what is the story of John, um, what is it about? And you say, mm -hmm. well, obviously it's about, it's the story of Jesus. And, and there's a sense in which that's true. But I don't think we understand how the passion narrative works as a, a narrated atonement until we see that that's that what John is really doing, and I think what all the gospels are doing is they're narrating the story of Israel as the story of Jesus. Mm -hmm. and, and like a like a recapitulation. Yeah, uh, like a recapitulation. But this is the climax of the story. Okay. This story of Jesus is the climax. Of the story of God's dealings with Israel, and God's the story of God's dealings with Israel is the story of of God's action to 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 bring things right, to restore the world. Uh, so it's a universal story, not just the specific mm. or the particular story of Israel, and and the way in which they narrate that is they first the scriptures narrate. The story of uh, of Israel and the story of Israel is the story of you know this was to be the the people by whom God accomplishes His purpose to create one family made up of all the families of of the world that will experience His blessing a kind of people of peoples is the way I put it in the book on cultural identity uh, one family made up of all the families of the world who are living you know. In this kind of mutuality of blessing, blessing, the blessing of life received from God, uh, and that life lived out in all these kind of richly human ways, you know, these these culturally innovative ways, and that results in blessing shared with others and blessing reciprocated. That's kind of the story that you know the early chapters of Genesis anticipate, and that's not the story that 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 happens mm -hmm. that ensues. Uh, because of human rebellion and and so the 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 the, so the election of israel is for a particular purpose it is to it is to restore that divine purpose for uh for his creation how does that happen well israel rebels against god how can israel be the the means by which god accomplishes that that purpose if they themselves are in rebellion mm -hmm. And so now Israel's own rebellion has to be uh, has to be dealt with, and the question that you know the the way that that the Old Testament the prophets narrate that is that you know no one you know how how's this sin this rebellion of Israel at a national level going to be going to be atoned for, um, and the answer is the nation itself must die. Hmm. The nation hmm. and the death of Israel is narrated hmm. as as exile. They're yeah. sent away. You know, everything that marked ancient nationhood comes to hmm. an end. You know, if you think about the, the the constituent elements of what it meant for an ancient nation to be hmm. a nation, it is connection to, you know, is land. Common, you know, connection to land and the land's connection to a deity. Uh, and you know, represented by the sanctuary in the middle, in the midst of the mm -hmm. land, um, and all of that is is destroyed. National, you know, Israel's peoplehood is destroyed. Mm -hmm. And so the prophets, like Ezekiel, they narrate exile as national death. Yeah. And the only way yeah. in which you know, the prophet says, you know, you know, he's shown this valley of bones, picture of Israel in mm -hmm. exile. And and he's asked, can these bones live? Mm -hmm. He says, I don't know. I <laughs> Lord, mean, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, Lord, you know, doesn't seem like it. You know, they're de they're dried, desiccated bones. Yeah. Such bones don't live. Ezekiel thirty seven. Hmm. Uh, until God does something, until he he washes them, and then he breathes, you know, this, his spirit into them. Mm -hmm. and 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 he says live and they live um and so it's a picture in one sense 
of return from exile. What the unthinkable. Once a nation has died, mm -hmm. the dissolution of national identity, nations don't come back from that. Mm -hmm. But unless God does it. Uh, mm. And so, but in one sense, you get the, the post-exilic literature in the Old Testament, and there's this question of, is it, are, are we really alive? I mean, is this it? Is this, mm. uh, has, has, and so what the post-exilic literature points to is that this is a kind of, this is a kind of dry run. This is, this is not the, the ultimate death and resurrection mm -hmm. of the and so what the Gospels are narrating in telling the story of Jesus the way that they do is he takes up the identity of Israel. Israel's identity is concentrated in him. And hmm. so this, you know, it, it is Israel in suffering the due punishment of God for their sin. Is Does that bring an end to wrath. That's the question of Daniel 9. And the answer to the question is no, that's not the end of wrath. There's an it's an, an initial end to wrath, but it's not the ultimate end of, of wrath. Um, so I don't think it's so much the category of exile per se. It's the category, it's what exile means. It's national death. And Jesus, in taking the identity of the nation unto himself, he lives that life. It's a recapitulation of, of Israel. Uh, if you want to think about baptism, you know, Jesus' baptism, at, you know, in terms of uh, the crossing of the Jordan and, and so forth as, you know, all that temptation narrative and the evocation of the, of the wilderness journey and all that that takes place. It's a, he's taking up the, the life of his people. He's taking their identity into himself. He dies their death, mm -hmm. and then he's raised to life again. Um, and so it's the narration of God's, the outpouring of God's, uh, the ultimate climactic outpouring of divine wrath in order to make a people who experience life in this new covenant relationship with him. Remember who God is in the covenant? He is life. That's who he is in the covenant. And he gives that life um, as resurrection life, as the life of the resurrection. And so John speaks about this life constantly. Um, what is the life that you live if you've been given that life? Mm. And for John, that it's the only life there is. Amen. Everybody else is is living death. Mm. Uh, you know, whatever they're living, it's not life. Wow. It's not Zoe. Mm -hmm. and you know, John says this this life has now been made available and live that life. Wow. And that life is going to be uh, obedience to the first commandment. You know, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's going to play out in our love for, for people. There's really only one commandment, and the commandment is live. Mm -hmm. Wow. And if, if you live, then you will love. If you Amen. live, you that's a great, that's a great last word right there, yeah. brother. So, man, thank you so much uh, for at least educating me on mm -hmm. some things and uh, broadening my perspective on some others. And so, Sam, mm -hmm. you got a last word for the day for our listeners? Um, I was thinking about uh, John the Baptist in another I Am statement. You mentioned uh, Peter saying, uh, I am not. Uh, I recall that John the Baptist in, in, in chapter one said, I am not as well. <laughs> uh, when they ask, are you Jesus? Are you the Messiah, rather? He says, I am not. And um, um, I'm just so thankful that we have a God, as you defined, that who is life in and of himself and who uh, is a suffering God and is close with us. As the book of Hebrews says, He, because he's suffered, he's able to uh, relate to us. And I, I really want uh, people and our listeners to know that there is this, as Dr. Brian talked about, this different kind of life that we can be living. Because we're racing around, running around, thinking that life is in all these other things. But life, true life, is in Jesus and what he offers and gives us. And if, and if people don't have that, uh, I, I want them to thirst for that and want that. Mm. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you. 
Thank you all for joining us for another episode. And uh, check out Dr. Brian's book if you get a chance, Cultural Identity and the Purposes of God, a Biblical Theology of Ethnicity, Nationality, and Race. And so check my brother's book out, man. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of nuggets in there from your um, mm -hmm. life and ministry. And so thank you guys. If this has been valuable for you, um, pass it on. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Leave us a comment. Let us know how it may or may not impacted you. And, uh, man, as you go into this um, this time of celebrating, and I do say celebrate intentionally, of our Messiah, our great God and King being crucified, but also being raised from the dead. Um, let the weight of that just settle in your spirit this time, maybe more than others. And just think about what this God who is life in himself and the giver of life, the great thing that he did for each and every one of us. And let that spring forth in our hearts and lead us to go tell others about him. So thank mm -hmm. you so much. Have a good rest of the day. Don't go stepping in no <laughs> yes. Peace. <laughs>